Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, did you have a good Thanksgiving? Uh, I had a great Thanksgiving, Josh. Thank you. And uh, I didn't injure myself putting up Christmas lights, so it's a win-win. Exciting. Let's talk about some happenings in Washington, D.C. over the last couple of weeks uh, since we last spoke. Uh, there's this issue of the gag order in the criminal trial in Washington, D.C., the January 6th related trial before Judge Tanya Chutkin. She issued this order that restricted the way that the president could talk about, that the former president could talk about potential witnesses, uh, about court staff, and about the individuals on the prosecution team. Uh, they appealed that order, President Trump's team did, uh, saying, among other things, that it infringes on his First Amendment rights. And now there's been an oral argument before an appeals court panel. And I guess we had a little bit of a hot bench. Yeah. And a super active questioning bench is usually great or disastrous, seldom (laughs) anything in between. This was pure First Amendment lawyer porn, two hours of hot, hot legal analysis action over the First Amendment and gag orders. Uh And the only thing that's for sure is that this seems like it will finally produce a federal court of appeals opinion that delves deeply into this subject, which is a good thing. The subject being how you balance the First Amendment rights of a defendant with the prerogatives of a court and a judge needing to move toward an orderly trial. Exactly. How how you apply uh, First Amendment rules that are better developed in other areas to this particular context of how a judge can limit uh, a party's speech in order to protect the integrity of a trial. Uh, that's just one that has not been squarely defined well by higher courts. Uh, and neither side got out of this without being grilled. Uh, Trump came in with his lawyers doing a very credible job with kind of a new spin. The spin, Josh, was that this is a heckler's veto. Now, a heckler's veto is traditionally a concept where the government says, we're not going to let you give this speech because people might react violently to it. Usually it's people who are going to react violently to you, like attack you because they're mad. But the way Trump spins it here is, you know, you're just trying to silence me because some hypothetical third people could engage in violence which is not quite what the heckler's veto is, but uh, he went with that. The the judges were not completely receptive to that. And what they tried to nail Trump's lawyers down was, is there any scenario where any type of comment that your client could make could be reasonably restricted? And Trump's lawyers were taking a very hard line. No, absolutely not. The judges seemed concerned that even though obviously you can't have a vague or overbroad standard, do we really have to wait until a witness is dead or you know fled to another country out of fear or something like that before we act? So the judges seem to think that there was some type of speech that could be restricted. But then the government got up and it became clear that the court, just like about just about all commentators on this, was concerned that this concept of targeting a witness was too vague. Mm -hmm. When you prohibit targeting, it's not clear what that means. It's not clear what type of speech is permitted and not permitted. And that's particularly a problem where, like here, all the people being talked about are politicians uh, in the political arena being talked about in that context. So the judges were asking uh, the government tough questions about, well, you know, can he say Bill Barr is a liar? Can he say it at a presidential debate? What about if it's a dirty liar? Is that different than just a liar? That type of question. Again, it's it's murky to try to read what the result will be based on the questions. But it seemed as if the court 
pretty clearly thought that this gag order is overbroad, but some type of gag order can be permissible. So I, I think the sort of listener consensus was that they would likely not uphold it as written, but they might remand it for narrowing or more specific findings or something like that. There might be some gag order that would survive. If you are not a criminal defendant, the situations in which the government can prohibit you from saying things because they might cause other people to engage in violence, there's a very narrow test for that, the Brandenburg test, where you, it has to be, your statements have to be intended and likely to cause imminent lawless action. And then your statements could be unprotected. They could be prosecutable. It sounds like that's not going to be a broad enough set of circumstances for this court, very likely. Are they going to come up with some other tests that's sort of similar in structure to that, but broader in terms of its application? Yeah, it seems like they were grappling for that and that it was not going to be enough uh, just that speech might have a negative effect, might influence a witness, might intimidate somebody. Uh, it, it, they were looking for a standard like, you know, there's a substantial chance of a material disruption of the trial or some language like that that's taken from other contexts. So you're right. This is a context is very important in First Amendment analysis, right? So your rights as a citizen out on the street, speaking on the street corner, are different than your rights as a government employee. You're more likely to be fired as a government employee. You have fewer rights in that context. You do have somewhat fewer rights to speak as a litigant. You can't stand up in the middle of a trial and swear at the judge, uh, even though you could stand out in a street corner and swear at the judge. So context is always going to make a difference. The question is, what difference does the context make here and which context is most powerful? Is the most powerful context that this is someone running for president of the United States and that most of this is core political speech, the, the stuff that is traditionally the most protected speech, or is the more powerful context that he is a defendant in a court proceeding and the court has a right to protect the integrity of the proceeding. If you end up with some standard that has to do with something about a substantial likelihood of some sort of disruption happening, I mean, that's both speculative and fact intensive To if you want to claim that something has a substantial likelihood of happening. So if you have that test, then you can go back and apply it. And then I assume the parties will argue again over whether the test has been applied correctly. Is that the sort of thing where you tend to have a lot of deference to the trial judge? about their assessment of substantial likelihood? Or is that something where we could be back again before the appeals court or even before the Supreme Court addressing that? Well, I think it's absolutely likely that it'll go back and forth to the appeals court and the Supreme Court. But typically, trial court assessments of factual issues uh, are going to be given a lot of deference uh, on appeal, not of legal issues. And with mixed issues of law and fact, it can be complicated. But there, there's plenty of law out there in other contexts about what is or is not a substantial chance of something like that. Uh, it's one of those terms of art. And I do think that Trump, I mean, does pose... Um, he's an unusual case, right? He's not the standard case. Not most people can get the audience he gets and have the impact that he gets. Uh, we're, we're seeing that a little bit in a parallel case, of course, in the litigation over the gag order in the New York case brought by the New York Attorney General. The government's just filed there a brief that lists pages and pages and pages of horrific stuff, emails and voicemails that the court has gotten attacking uh, the, the judge's uh, law clerk and the judge and that sort of thing. And it's pretty clear that most people can't inspire that. Mm -hmm. 
uh, Trump can't. So, so Trump is an odd case. Meanwhile, there's there's another uh, issue in this case where Trump's team moved to strike certain aspects of the indictment against him. Basically, there's a bunch of discussion about uh, the language and violence on January 6th, and they say that this is that this is irrelevant to what he's been charged with, that it's prejudicial, and that it should be taken out of the indictment. And I guess the first question is, does this matter? The jury doesn't even see the indictment, right? Right, unless they read it in the paper or online uh, before the case. In which case, they're told they're not supposed to consider it, right? Exactly. So typically, juries do not get to see whatever the key pleadings are. In a civil case, you generally don't give the jury the complaint or the answer. Uh, in a criminal case, you don't give the jury the indictment. Generally, the, the judge will summarize what the charges are, what the causes of action are, that type of thing. And so this type of thing is usually less relevant. This motion to strike, there's a, there's a federal rule of criminal procedure that allows you to ask to strike surplusage, but surplusage turns out to mean stuff that is inflammatory, prejudicial, and irrelevant. And what Judge Chutkin said here, more or less, is I don't even really need to look at whether it's irrelevant because you haven't shown me that it's really prejudicial. They're highly disfavored motions. Uh, they're, they're rarely granted. I question them as a strategy because I think they just tend to highlight the bad stuff that's in the charging instrument. You know, it's not surprising that the judge turned it down. These are generally denied. We've seen some more action in the various cases about whether Donald Trump can even appear on presidential ballots and whether he is eligible to hold the presidency. Uh, there's this provision of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, that says that if you previously swore an oath to support the Constitution and then you engaged in, in, in an insurrection against the United States, that you're ineligible to hold certain offices. Uh, and so you had this case in Michigan where you had a judge basically say, this is a political question. I can't rule on this. It got to the Supreme Court in the state of Minnesota where they said, you know, well, this case is about the primary ballot. Um, there's no uh, statute in Minnesota that would allow uh, someone to be removed for the primer from the primary ballot for this reason. Um, and then in Colorado, you had another court that also declined to remove Trump, but again, with with different reasoning than you saw in other courts. Uh, this this judge in Colorado actually reached a bunch of questions of fact and said that Trump did engage in in insurrection. Um, but she also said that Section three doesn't apply to the president of the United States. Uh, Section three specifically says it applies to senators and representatives, and then it says it applies to officers of the United States. Uh, Trump has argued that uh, the president is not an officer of the United States within the meaning of that provision. Of the Constitution. And the court actually agreed with that, even though they disagreed with Trump on other key points, including whether he engaged in insurrection. So you had this trial court decision in Colorado that Trump can remain on the ballot, but now there's an appeal to the Colorado Supreme Court. Um, and I think, you know, the, the first thing is a lot of people look at this and say, how could it possibly be the case that the president is not an officer of the United States? Right. And I mean, I think probably the, the large weight of commentators on this question the validity of this decision. Although, Asking about terms like this, officer of the United States, is common in both constitutional litigation and statutory litigation. We've seen it before, like in the Westfall Act and, and other issues where that term is used. And as you pointed out, Josh, in fact, the Trump has taken a different position on whether he's an officer of the United States when talking about the Westfall Act that protects him from litigation. And his attorneys say we're allowed to do that because this term is defined differently for the purpose of different provisions for the statute versus for the Constitution. Exactly. So, yes, J Judge Sarah Wallace did find very briefly, and I would 
say almost in conclusory fashion that he's not a officer of the United States within the meaning of the 14th Amendment. That that does strike me as odd that the most, you know, as people have said, the most powerful figure in the government, uh, this restriction doesn't apply to them. Um, and it's really not an argument that is fleshed out very well, I think, in the order. By contrast, Judge Wallace goes into great detail in finding, basically, that he did, in fact, engage in insurrection uh, within the meaning of uh, the 14th Amendment. And she goes through the events of January 6th. And the core of our argument really is that you have to understand Trump's words and actions that day in the context of his past actions and in the context of everything happening. So you can't just sort of take his January 6th speech to the crowd out of context and say, well, you know, politicians say fight like hell all the time. That's not incitement to violence. You have to look at it in the context of everything he was trying to do, everything he knew and everything he said about it later. And with all of that, she's convinced that he intended and was likely to cause imminent lawless action, that he incited and that he participated in the violent insurrection uh, by the crowd that went over to the Congress and, and sacked it. Uh, so um, that's pretty startling as a finding that the former president of the United States engaged in insurrection. It's a pretty detailed factual finding, which is entitled to some deference on appeal. I think that her Brandenburg analysis is, you know, a bit of a stretch. This is the analysis about the former president's First Amendment rights to make these sorts of statements. Exactly. Brandenburg is the case that says that it's only incitement outside the scope of the First Amendment uh, if it, the speech is intended and likely to cause imminent lawless action. I think she uh, takes that a little bit too fast, um, but I mean, it's a it's a colorable, it's a credible argument. Uh, and this kind of demonstrates the best way it could be made by a judge. So interestingly, uh, you know, you wind up with someone who has made factual findings on the subject that most people find to be the most complicated part of this case, which is what's an insurrection and did, did he engage in it? Right. And then punting on uh, what seems to be the easier question. So as a result of that, both sides have appealed. Uh, the you know, the, the original plaintiffs here would still like Trump removed from the ballot and they are objecting to Judge Wallace's ruling about whether this provision applies to the president, to the presidency. And then uh, Trump has also appealed saying, you know, some of these other findings, even though we got what we wanted on the result. Some of these other findings are wrong and are going to set bad precedents. And one thing they asked that, that stuck out to me as well is if Judge Wallace found that uh, the 14th Amendment Section 3 doesn't apply to the situation, then why did she even make any factual findings about whether Donald Trump engaged in insurrection? That, you know, if, if, if they don't have, if he can't be removed, even if he had engaged in, in an insurrection, what's the point of doing all that fact finding? Well, but the thing is that that it's common for courts to make alternative findings and to draw different conclusions in case the Court of Appeals doesn't agree with them on anything. So this is not at all unusual. It's it's common for a judge to say, uh, on the one hand, they're, they're welcome to say, I don't have to reach any of this because he's not an officer. That would have been a not unusual approach. But it's also normal to say, now that there's been all of this trial and all this effort, I'm going to make factual findings about the part that I observed and about the parts that are relevant, even if I ultimately find that they don't control the result. 
uh, just so that the Court of Appeals has a record of what my findings are, what my factual conclusions are. So that's well within the judge's discretion to handle it that way. And it, when you think about it, it's, it's good because then it's not a waste of time. I mean, basically, the judge makes the factual findings on the part that call for them. And then to the extent the Court of Appeals disagrees on this purely legal question, uh, they're left with those factual findings and, and you don't have to retry or revisit the issue. Another thing that Trump's side says is that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment refers to people who have taken an oath to support the Constitution. And what Trump's team says is the presidential oath of office says preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. It does not say support, and therefore it doesn't apply to him, which sounds like such semantic bullshit. Is there, any, is, is there anything to that argument? Yeah, I, I, I think the consensus is that preserve, defend, and protect— uh, encompasses support and is actually, if anything, more extensive than support. And that that argument is unlikely to fly. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the oath tricky, Josh. Obama had to take it twice, if memory serves, because he got it wrong <laughs> once. Right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't think that's the winning argument here. But I mean, I guess that's, you know, you you, you throw in all your available arguments, right? You know, it's not exactly. just you go with what you think are the best ones. You want to give the court as many ways as possible to rule for you. And this illustrates why. I mean, most people ahead of time probably would have said, and eh, yeah, the, the, he's not an officer. That's not a winning argument. But that is the one that won for him with this judge. So that's why it's so hard sometimes to be a litigator and make those judgments about which arguments are, are really bullshit and which ones seem improbable, but you never know it might work. Let's talk about Georgia and this uh, very sprawling and messy RICO case that DA Fonnie Willis has brought in Fulton County. Uh, one of the more minor defendants in that case, uh, Harrison Floyd, former head of Black Voices for Trump. He's been indicted. Uh, the allegation is that he was involved in an effort uh, to induce uh, an election worker to falsely claim that she had been involved in fraud in Fulton County. Uh, anyway, he's been sounding off on social media in a way that bothers the district attorney. She says that he's intimidating witnesses. She sought to get his bond revoked. And uh, Judge Scott McAfee didn't revoke the bond. He basically told Floyd, don't do that again. Yeah, what the what the judge said more or less is, you know, I, I do think that some of this violates your terms of release, but because that wasn't clear before, um, I, I'm not going to revoke your bail. One of the issues here is one actually that I've encountered before. Many lawyers have in, in modern litigation, and that is whether tagging someone on social media is the same as contacting them. Mm -hmm. So when you have like restraining orders, it's typical for there to be order not to send an email or text or contact. But if you like at them on Twitter, is that contacting or not? Um, sometimes there's ambiguity about that. So here, uh, Harrison Floyd was tagging people and basically calling them liars and things like that, but not doing anything that was an overt threat, just trash talking, as we've said before. And the judge's conclusion was sort of, well, I find some of your comments to be crossing the line towards intimidation. And I do think that tagging them constitutes contacting them because it results in contact to them. They automatically see that you've made this communication and includes them. Um, but because that wasn't clear before as a technical violation, don't do it again. And so if, if you write their name out in the tweet instead of putting their username, that 
means you don't end up running afoul of that. I mean, they could have a name search on for their name, but I guess it's they made the affirmative choice to go out and look for things that were said about them, whereas it's like a default setting that if someone tags you, you'll see it and you have to turn that off. It's that That's what the law hinges on? I mean, generally, under the First Amendment, you can stop someone from talking to you, but not about you. Mm-hmm. So you can get someone to stop telephoning and emailing and texting, but you can't get them to stop tweeting about what a jerk you are. Uh, I've tried my best, but, you know, uh, <laughs> so it's a little broader in the case of intimidating witnesses, but nothing Floyd has said has really crossed, uh, in my view, past just typical political trash talk into actual threats. It's He, he doesn't approach some of the things that Trump says uh, about how, you know, this is treason and the penalty of treason is death, <laughs> you know, stupid stuff like that. But, you know, I, I have a feeling we're going to see Harrison Floyd again on this show, Josh. He's a hothead. Uh, remember, he's he's under charges for allegedly body slamming the uh, federal agent who served him with a grand jury subpoena. He, he seems to have self-regulation issues, let's put it that way, and I would not be surprised if we see this recur. Let's talk about Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden, uh, the, uh, the House continues to move maybe toward an impeachment. It's not clear that there is a majority of votes in the House of Representatives to actually impeach President Biden, but there's a lot of Republicans in the House who are very enthusiastic about the idea. So they continue to have this inquiry and they continue to talk about the possibility that maybe at some point they will vote um, on actually moving toward impeachment. And so one part of that process is that uh, uh, he Hunter Biden has been subpoenaed to give a deposition behind closed doors in this impeachment inquiry. Um, and what his attorneys said basically is, you know, he doesn't want to come behind closed doors, but if they want to interview him out in the open, he's willing to do that. Is that a good idea when you're under one criminal indictment, you're likely to be under another criminal indictment to offer to go testify publicly before Congress about matters closely related to your criminal troubles? I would have said absolutely not, but I have to give it to his lawyers. This seems like a clever gambit that worked. I think they thought it was a safe offer that the GOP wants to do this behind closed doors so they can manipulate and lie about the information and and generally do it dishonestly, and that they were never going to accept the offer that he'll testify if you do it in the open. And so it was a safe offer that makes him look good, makes Republicans look bad. And it seems as if they fell for it. I mean, uh, Representative James Comer of Kentucky said, no, he's got to do it the same way as everyone else, you know, deposition behind closed doors. Now, you know, with hostile questioners who are incentivized to dig up dirt, not only about uncharged stuff like all these investigations of of Hunter's financial dealings, but also to grill him about the gun charge and about the potential tax charges that would normally be suicidal. But it seems this was just a a political gambit to make the Republicans look dumb and dishonest. And it it seems like it worked. If they called him to testify behind closed doors. I mean, I know the concern has been that with prior interviews, there's sort of leaks of information from the interview that's not representative of the whole content of the interview. If Hunter Biden was complied with the subpoena and was deposed, wouldn't he just take the fifth in response to every question? Well, you would think. Um, that's certainly what most lawyers would advise him to do. That's what you would expect him to do. But again, maybe they have some sort of weird strategy. Remember, that Hunter Biden's lawyer's strategy has been consistently aggressive and a little outside the box. He's been bringing repeatedly 
defamation suits and other civil suits um, that expose him to discovery and questioning in order to gather information to fight what I think he sees as the big fight, the possible additional set of charges that comes down if Donald Trump uh, wins the presidency and has his Department of Justice go after his political enemies. So he might have some strategy that is more focused on that, less focused on uh, you know, the troubles of the gun case and the tax case. Uh, and, you know, that, again, is aggressive and outside the box. But uh, I've got to hand it to him. And in, in this instance, this gambit seemed to work. If he ends up speaking publicly, I mean, suppose the Republicans decide at some point that they do want the spectacle of Hunter Biden testifying in public. Um, and he goes and answers questions there. Is he waiving any Fifth Amendment right that he's going to need later? So generally, the rule of the Fifth Amendment is you only waive it in the particular proceeding in which you're asserting it. So you can't testify at trial, but then midway through, take the Fifth. You can't do that. Um, but you can testify in a civil case and then decide to take the Fifth in a criminal case, for instance. And this is something that's come up before uh, when people have taken the fifth in front of Congress, but then testified elsewhere and so forth. So the answer is no, it would not waive the Fifth Amendment in other proceedings. Now, reaching for the stars here for Hunter Biden and his lawyers would be what happens um, if he takes the fifth. Can he trick the Republicans into getting a court order to compel him to testify? <laughs> um, that's what I would want to do, because if they, he does that, then the testimony becomes radioactive. And basically, uh -huh. in any future prosecution, the government would have to prove that the compelled testimony played no role whatsoever in the development of the evidence in the case. Remember, uh, uh, so, well, Oliver North, you were probably like, what, three? Uh, Oliver Approximately, North, yes. yes. Oliver North uh, was compelled to testify before Congress about Iran-Contra um, over his Fifth Amendment objections, a court order, and then they tried to prosecute him, and he got the prosecution eventually overturned and thrown out because, again, there was that radioactive testimony that was compelled, and then the, the government had trouble demonstrating the prosecution was not impacted by it at all. So that's what you would try to trick the Republicans to do. I'm not sure the Republicans are that dumb, but I think there's a possibility the Republicans are that dumb. I mean, one of their key objectives here seems to be to get Hunter Biden prosecuted. So I think that they are probably... They probably have their eyes on the ball on that, that, you know, doing things that cause him to have immunity or an immunity like situation where, you know, there's a lot of evidence that can't be used against him. I'm not sure, though. I think isn't their bigger uh, goal to screw around with Joe Biden and to interfere with his presidency and interfere with his campaign to be reelected. So they, they may prize that more. Right. But, but I think that they think the prosecution's are important in part because they inflict political damage. I, I, at this point, we're speculating about politics, but it's right, you know, the, one, of the, one of the key things, one of the key complaints from Republicans is basically, you know, that they, they think that the deal he was getting from the Department of Justice was too sweet. Um, and they think that there should be DOJ prosecutions, which makes me think right. that they will probably try not to interfere with that, but we'll see. Let's talk about Elon Musk, uh, because uh, Twitter's had a rough couple of weeks. 
Um, first, uh, Elon Musk endorsed this bigoted tweet saying that uh, Jews are basically trying to bring foreigners into the United States to undermine it. He called this the truth. Um, there was a lot of negative reaction to that. At around the same time, Media Matters for America, a liberal pressure group, uh, released this report showing how uh, you could have uh brand messages from brands like Disney appearing next to white nationalist content on Twitter. And some combination of these events caused a number of major advertisers to pause uh, their advertising on Twitter. Twitter's ad business has already been battered by a combination of Elon Musk's undermining of the brand and you know, prior weaknesses in the Twitter business that, that predate Elon Musk. But in any case, uh, so you had that rough situation. Elon Musk is really mad about this Media Matters report, says it's unfair and distorting and they basically rigged it. And so over the weekend, not this past weekend, but the prior one, Elon Musk said that they would file a lawsuit as soon as the court opened on Monday morning against Media Matters for trying to damage Twitter's business. Now, I guess the first thing to note here is you can file a lawsuit when the court is closed, right? It's like it's it's just a thing you do on the internet now? Yeah, because, you know, it's not 1970. Uh, you actually have e-filing now and you're required to file it on the internet and you can uh, initiate it 24-7, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and people do. So the the, the flourish, uh, the boast, we're going to do it the moment court opens on Monday kind of made him look a little dumb. Uh, but indeed, uh, he got lawyers to file a lawsuit uh, in Texas federal court uh, against media matters. On Monday the 20th, not at the, not when the court opened, but on that day. No, but, you know, sometimes it's just traffic, I guess, Josh, or whatever. <laughs> so notably, uh, a couple of things here. You know, he's got big mega firms working for him all the time. You know, he's got his lead lawyer uh, at Quinn Emanuel. Uh, you know, he's got all these other firms on retainer. None of those big firms filed this. I think that's significant. That's probably because they thought they didn't want to get involved and it's kind of bullshit. Um, also, because I think it would probably get them sideways with some of these advertisers. It would put them in the, the uh, position of having to question and depose and challenge all these advertisers about why they actually left X. Um, the other thing to note is that you know he forum shopped. Uh, Media Matters uh, is not in Texas. Uh, people read them in Texas, I suppose. You know, uh, X is not in Texas, but they chose this form because they could basically judge shop uh, that in this district, in this uh, division of it, there are relatively few judges. And one of them, the one they ultimately ended up with, is known for making some fairly extravagant uh, conservative rulings. Um, now, I think, and many people think those extravagant conservative rulings are more likely to be on things like, you know, Obamacare or abortion and things like that, less likely being putting up with bullshit defamation suits by conservatives. So I, I think he's a little overly optimistic it's going to make a big difference. Will this will this case stay in Texas? I mean, I, I read that the Twitter terms of service requires that lawsuits be in California. Yeah. So but I mean, it's it's not exactly a Twitter terms of service case. It's not a case about uh, the use of Twitter. It's about Media Matters separate publication. So uh, but but anyway, uh, they sue for interference with contract, business disparagement and interference with economic advantage. Those are all fairly boilerplate standard ways to say, but really defamation. 
uh, when you're talking about a business or saying that, you know, you lost my me business by the things you said. They kind of they even say defamation several times in the complaint, even though they don't plead it as cause of action. For most purposes, it really doesn't make a difference how you label it. The other significance, by the way, of filing it in Texas, and I think probably even more of a reason than choosing the judge, is because of anti-slap statutes. Now, California has a very strong anti-slap statute, uh, which, uh, which, as you recall, is a statute that allows you to make a special motion to get rid of a bogus case that attacks speech. Texas also has one, but the key difference is that the conservative Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, the federal court uh, covering Texas, has said that state anti-slap statutes don't apply in federal court. The Ninth Circuit here in California has gone the other way. So by choosing Texas as a forum, uh, X is saying you don't get to use the anti-slap statute. Now, as you said, I expect that Media Matters may move to change the venue to someplace logical, like where their headquarters is or where X's headquarters is or anything like that. Um, but those motions are disfavored. I don't think it's a it certainly won't be easy to do that. So. The, the report from Media Matters basically said, you know, here are these ads for these brands appearing right next to this very offensive content. And what Twitter has to say about this is that basically Media Matters really juked the testing, that they, they created these accounts, they followed a specific set of accounts that was likely to produce, uh, you know, this, this particular set of offensive tweets, and then they, they reloaded a lot of things and saw way more ads total than a typical user sees and basically created this very unusual situation to produce an unusual outcome. And they alleged in some cases, in fact, that the combination of post and ad that Media Matters saw, that they were the only user who saw that specific uh, combination. And so they're saying that the report was unfair, that it didn't, you know, that it didn't create an accurate picture uh, of what it is like to be a Twitter user and your odds of seeing uh, some white nationalist content right next to an ad from one of these major brands. Now, usually, you know, your analysis is unfair, is not sufficient for a, a defamation action. I mean, if, the, if it was, then you'd have lawsuits over, you know, every op-ed column that runs in a newspaper in the United States. Um, that, you know, the, so long as the, the thing that, that Media Matters described happening did in fact happen, that, that should protect them. And so I guess my, my first question is, sometimes you can have situations where you can make a defamation claim based on the implication of a false fact, um, that even if you don't say this is the typical user experience on Twitter, is the argument here that they are implying that this is a really common outcome, and therefore because it is in fact a rare outcome, that that's defamatory, it creates a, a defamatory impression of Twitter and it's, you know, the prevalence of hate content and advertising? I think it's a weak argument because uh, Media Matters did not use language portraying it as happening all the time or the common result or that type of thing. Uh, they didn't use the language that you've seen in other cases where a court finds that there's a, a false implication that suggested this is the typical result or this is what you're going to see all the time. Uh, I mean, X's complaint is that uh, Media Matters basically hit the F5 key a lot, that they refreshed <laughs> the account a bunch of times and and like not a thousand times, but like they claim 13 to 15 times. Well, that's not necessarily a lot of times. I mean, I can recall times on Twitter refreshing it a whole lot of times, like, for instance, waiting to see if Michael Avenatti has responded to my insult or something <laughs> like that. So I think it's a pretty weak argument. And the question is, is it weak enough that they can get out of the case 
at an early stage, uh, as opposed to having to go through discovery and litigate it. The other part that I think is extremely weak, and this is unfortunately one probably that would have to be litigated out, is the damages argument. Uh, so they're claiming that it was Media Matters that led to this advertiser exodus. I, I, I think the causation there is incredibly questionable because uh, I, I think you know Elon Musk, uh, the world's richest man, uh, overtly endorsing the the anti-Semitic Great Replacement theory in responding to an overt bigot's tweet uh, is likely more of a causal factor and more poisonous, and you can't really tease those apart. And that's going to be enhanced by the fact that that later, after filing the lawsuit this week, as we tape, Elon Musk has gone on to endorse uh, the infamous Pizzagate conspiracy theory in a similar fashion by endorsing somebody else's tweet. Pizzagate being the theory that, of course, uh, you know, Obama administration people are in a conspiracy to uh, abduct and torture and possibly have satanic rituals concerning children. Um, all complete idiocy. So uh, the way Elon commonly acts on Twitter is is going to be something that's going to hard for them to get around to say, oh, actually, it was this Media Matters post that drove off the advertisers. And so, but I, we're unlikely to reach that point, right? You never know. I mean, Elon Musk has got all the money in the world and he can litigate this forever. I, it's, you know, it's the process is the punishment. It's pure litigation by harassment. And the concerning part, uh, I think even more than this lawsuit, which is just sort of garden variety, harassment by litigation is the official conservative response. So you've got uh, Ken Paxton, the the uh, Republican attorney general um, of Texas, himself under indictment, uh, saying that he is going to investigate through the Texas attorney general's office the media matter of peace for fraud. Now, attorneys general don't investigate uh, journalism for fraud. That's not a thing, but several Republican attorneys general have said so. And that's basically, you know, imagine the outcry if, uh, you know, the attorneys general of uh, Massachusetts and California said, we're going to investigate Fox News for fraud and how it reported about the 2000 election. We're going to do a criminal investigation that would delight, uh, you know, the resistance people. Um, but it would be very, very far outside the norm and very scary. This is the same thing. This is just sheer. We're going to use the criminal apparatus of the government to go after journalists who report things we don't like. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, setting aside the merits of the cases, um, Dominion Voting Systems similarly said, you know, this public reporting about our business was damaging to our business and it was defamatory. I don't recall any intervention by state attorneys general there. It was just, you know, Dominion was the plaintiff and ultimately got a very large uh, settlement. Um, but that's, you know, I, th I think that was correctly understood to be a matter between private parties. That's right. And, uh, you know, the attorneys general of the different states do have fraud investigation authority, but it's like fraud on people that cost money. It's selling defective widgets. It's selling, you know, uh, uh, fake vacation homes or whatever. Uh, that's the type of fraud authority that they have. They don't have authority uh, generally to investigate journalism that we think leads to a improper conclusion. And it would be very frightening if they could. Uh, let's leave it there this week on that note. Ken, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you, Josh. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Spodek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more soon. <laughs>
See you next time.